1: Hiya, Alan Smith from the Daily Mirror here, um, joined by a very special guest, Clive Tilsley, who is just recently returned from covering his eighth World Cup in Qatar. So we're going to have a chat about what uh, Clive made of Qatar, his career, um, some of the stories, his memories. um, And yeah, Clive, thank you very much for joining us. I I have time on my hands, strangely, yes. (laughs) What was it like, first of all? What was Qatar as a place
0: and the tournament itself? like for you? It's a show and it feels like a show. It doesn't feel like footballers as, as we know it. Aside from the huge issues w- with regards to the, the, the death of far too many migrant workers in the construction um, of this World Cup and the regime's attitude towards LGBTQ and various other elements of human rights. And if you can sweep those aside and that that's a big if. It's pretty much the World Cup that FIFA wanted. It is um, a carefully presented business class version, uh, vision of the world's game. And I think I wouldn't say in fairness to them, but maybe in recognition of what they saw, the sheer power of football and the size of the World Cup, the size and reach of the World Cup. This is my eighth, and it always surprises me, the impact that it has around the world, all those fan parks that we saw in Sydney and Tokyo and Rabat, that eventually drowns out all the other noise and all the other questions that people were asking about the suitability of the venue before. It presents something which is very digestible for the world to watch on television, and it is principally a television event, and is very, very convenient to work out if you're there.
1: Did you feel the need to discuss some of those issues on air or just touch on them in generally when you you were there to commentate on a specific match at that one time?
0: I think that I'm a football commentator and that um, the focus of my attention should be the match in front of me. I think that I should be aware of the context of the tournament. And if editorially something happens, which may be cause on me to... Make a, an observation or a remark. I made one or two write comments about old Gianni's compulsory close-up in the opening couple of minutes of the game, which was, on the one hand, crass and on the other hand, vaguely comedic. But um, I did actually write in a in an article for f Three Six Five during the uh, the tournament that no wonder he looks so pleased with himself because he's he's kind of got away with it and. Um, I'm not comfortable about the fact that I haven't gone out of my way to make comments, but then I think they would have sounded uncomfortable in the context of my particular role. I didn't see anything that appalled me. I wore um, a little... Um, rainbow flag pin, which a friend had sent me and asked me to wear it every game if I could. Nobody looked at it, really nobody. It certainly uh, there were no eyes rolled or eyebrows raised at it. I think I made a remark in the same article that I don't think I was brainwashed, but I felt anaesthetized. And I felt that probably a lot of the smiling... Um, volunteer workers were pretty anaesthetized by it all too that was the idea
1: I think as viewers here a lot of people were sort of struck by your rapport with Ali McCoist in particular during the tournament can I just ask you what, what do you feel makes a good partnership among commentators what, what do you need to have that
0: chemistry and, and spark it happens to be like them and I, I love him the role of the co-commentator for me is of somebody who's crossed that white line where most of us dream of going but will never go and can come back and tell us what it's like on the other side of that white line in very simple terms and if they can tell us how and why football matches are won and lost or the better some of the greatest footballers of all time have no idea why they were great or how they were great they, they were just instinctively brilliant and they don't have the lucidity to come back and explain to mere mortals. I often think that it's quite interesting that some of the most successful pundits and co-commentators—I mean Gary and Cara—would be good examples. Were players who probably had to work pretty hard at making a career for themselves because they weren't Beckham and they weren't you know, whatever uh, Salah. Ali was great. To overused word foot in football, but as a performer. Certainly within Scotland, I mean, you only got to look at the goals he scored. He's up there with with Dennis Lawrence and Kenny Dalgleish. I mean, he is an absolute legend in Scottish football. So his CV in that sense is as strong as anybody's. Managerially, he didn't have anything like the same amount of success, but that was circumstantial. He actually sacrificed himself in many ways to manage his beloved club at the most difficult time in their modern history. And I think in many ways that adds to his managerial experience more than maybe just taking over a club that was routinely winning nine in a row. So I believe, and I sometimes have to say to him you're, you are a serious football pundit. You're a funny guy, and we all love you for that. But don't underestimate your credentials. I think that the greatest single quality that a broadcaster has is warmth. That's, I think if people naturally like you without knowing you, then that is an absolute gift. And Koisty has that warmth. Um, he has the passion. Um, but he has an ability to take a step back from the game and not become too precious or austere about it and talk about it in a way that people can relate to what he's saying is that the, the quality of his analysis is as strong as anybody's, but his magic his power is that you feel as if you'd like to go and have a pint with him. And by the way, if you've got the opportunity, you'd love having a pint with Adam McCoy. So he is, He's a magic man. He's um, he he is a, a huge football figure with all the credibility that goes with that, but he is a common man who is intensely likable, and that comes out an air and makes my job being alongside him so much easier. When you were coming back, um,
1: you'd obviously tweeted a picture of of yourself and, well, a picture of your ticket home saying it was the first time of the eight World Cups that you were returning before England.
0: I don't think it's particularly important. Uh, It's happened. It's history. Heads of sport are like football managers so they've got to make selections. There'll be England footballers um, who've come back from the tournament without having played or played less than they would have hoped, who will be personally disappointed, but will feel... Um, privileged and uplifted to have been part of the team and I think ITV have had a really really good World Cup I think that a lot of the news agenda around the World Cup has been made by the likes of, of Roy Keane and Gary Neville and Ian Wright and Graeme Souness I think we've got operators really gifted performers uh, like Laura Woods and Mark Pugac and Gabriel Clark who've unlike Ali McCoist, obviously um who've given us an edge actually over our opponents. That's, uh, here, here's me talking about we. So I'm working for ITV in the FA Cup first week in January, and I wouldn't be doing that if there was a great deal of bitterness and I wouldn't be praising the output of the people who are responsible for the output of the people who basically decided that there were two better commentators than me to, um, to take the the two live ITV quarterfinals was I disappointed? you bet I was Uh, was I bitterly disappointed? yeah I was Um, but it's a decision which I've got to accept and in the grand scheme of things um, people don't turn on for the commentator they turn on for the football so I accept the decision didn't agree with it I accept the decision um I, in terms of detail, was offered um, a quarterfinal to commentate on for highlights. Uh, it would have meant me staying on in Qatar for another four or five days to essentially commentate on 10 minutes of television um, post midnight. Uh, I said I would do that. I was happy to do that if they really couldn't um, cover without me. But my preference would be to fly home early if that was possible. And they said, OK,
1: how different is the industry now—the the wider t- sports TV industry—compared to when you were when you were starting off as a commentator?
0: Well, social media has changed a lot of things in our lives. Our children are sort of late twenties. One has now reached the ripe old age of thirty. I mean, they really are my touchstone. When people sort of say, oh, you you know, you're getting a bit old now, you can't relate to young people. Well, they're among my best friends in the world. I've got to relate to them. So I think I can actually relate to younger people. But what I try to relate to them is that this isn't how the planet usually is. You know, there isn't usually um, a a brutal war happening two hours flight from Heathrow. There isn't usually a a global pandemic um, mercilessly killing thousands and thousands and thousands of of innocent people, Um, there isn't usually this um, economic crisis that the world seems to find itself whereby we're facing a winter where people have got to choose whether to eat or heat and everything. So, you know, that is the backdrop to the world as it is. Um, And one of the things that makes me so angry about social media is that there are so many people who are so damn certain about anything. At the most uncertain time, you know, I'm 183 years old, you know. I've been on the planet a long time, and these are the most uncertain years I've known. And yet there are people out there who are so, so certain uh, about anything and everything, from Gareth Southgate's election to Brexit to Clive Tilsley to Sam Matafez, whatever. It, life isn't like that, you know. Life life is, and particularly sport, is about uncertainty and the, the wonder of, of commentating on a football match is, you know, once the referee blows the first whistle, you've no idea where it's going. And, and we as commentators are just hanging on for dear life. So in that sense, the techniques are very similar. Commentary develops like all things do. It's become a bit conversational for my liking and so on. But that that's a matter of personal taste. There are still commentators that you can find who you would like. The difference for... All of us, and particularly at a World Cup, where the audience is 20 million plus for a for a big game, is is the jeopardy with every word that you say, and um, you know that a lot of that jeopardy is artificially generated, really, by um, these people who are certain about everything on social media. So that's changed it. Of course, it has.
1: Over your left shoulder, a couple of um, your commentary charts, which people can now actually. By online. Could you just tell me a little bit about the process of, of compiling the charts and the research? And has the process changed as your career has progressed, or is it kind of something you decided young, uh, eight World Cups ago, seven World Cups ago, and you've stuck to that process throughout?
0: I, well, I I can use a laptop, and I do know what a word file is, and uh, and quite a lot of the research that I use during a game is is you know just comes out of a printer. This is how I began to prepare for. Uh, football commentaries. Anybody can do the research for a football match. Um, How you use your research editorially really is the key. So however you prepare your research, A, there's um, a kind of comfort blanket feel to having some research in front of you, which I think looks good and looks ordered. Um, It gives you confidence that you're able to find what you need when you need it and also confidence that you've done the work, that you've done the prep, that you put the the hard yards in and done the hours and that there should be nobody listening who knows more about the backdrop to this football match than you do. But actually they are... A bit of decoration, really, even for me during the course of a game. And if I use more than 10% of the information that I research, then I think I'm probably starting to bore the the listener or the viewer. I'm not a trained journalist, but I feel that journalism is the key to, to good broadcasting, particularly to good commentary, to... Essentially, our job is to find the right words for the right moments uh, and and sometimes no words at all for the for the right moments. And so that is that's an editorial process. And I think if there is such a thing as any talent in what we do, That's where it lies in being a good journalist at the right time and capturing the story, capturing the moment, capturing the mood and trying desperately hard to concentrate so that you don't work against the mood, that you don't say something which people find offensive or inappropriate. Um, And that's where the jeopardy of, of Twitter comes in, because you soon find out if you if you do.
1: I guess a lot of football fans will always put you alongside Barcelona '99 as you know the iconic. That was my people. dad. Uh, I'm 37. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of people think that was me, but no, I'm really not that old. As the sort of you know iconic piece of commentary, but for you personally, what are the games do you kind of think? Okay, my own particular performance as a commentator, it sort of you know ticked almost all the boxes here
0: i am always looking forward the most important game of my career to date is undoubtedly the 1999 champions league final but um only because the late great Brian Moore retired after the 98 World Cup final. That was my first season as ITV's senior commentator. There were 20 million people watching. Uh, They had a rookie at the microphone, and if that rookie had screwed up, then frankly we wouldn't be having this conversation now. They'd have found somebody else. So those two or three minutes of television were really, really important to me giving the confidence of the people who employed me to carry on and and then watching you you know your first breaks the biggest break in any in any profession and that was my one of my first big breaks in 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 television
1: you had mentioned brian um a couple of minutes ago for commentators now aspiring commentators looking to get into it. what pieces of advice could you give them that you would perhaps receive at the beginning, that you think is, you know, it's still relevant now in this new new world.
0: I, from a, an era where after a, a show of any kind, there would be a debrief straight away. You know, we we, we would we would go into a, a room and a, and people would talk openly about what they liked and didn't like about each other's performances. Good friends. I don't think that happens anymore. Um, I come across. Uh, co-commentators, pundits working for the first time who just haven't, they've literally been employed and been given no direction about this completely different profession that they're taking on. And uh, I have commentators, but uh, younger commentators who come to me for advice and, and I'm more than happy to give it. I'm well aware that this isn't a job which, you know, we don't save anybody's lives, we don't add to the GNP in it, any uh, great way um it's a job that lots of people would like and so there's um a certain amount of examination about everything you do everybody thinks they can do it better which is fine that's cool um i'm very very lucky to have it. it's all i ever wanted to do so i take it very seriously i'm aware that it's not actually serious in in the great scheme of things but if somebody had said to me when i was 16 17 years of age look I know your ambition is to be a football commentator, but I'm sorry, it's not going to happen. You're going to become an accountant, but you're going to go on a reality show and you're going to get to commentate live on national TV for one minute of football. And that you know that will be your consolation. Uh, I would have been so precious about that one minute of television. And without trying to sound um, better than I am, uh, I still try to treat every minute and I'm on air like that minute. I still take it that seriously. Uh, I still rarely, after watching back what I do, am happy with with what I've done. Um, I am still trying to get better. So in terms of how commentary has changed and, uh, and I say it's, it's very much a matter of taste um, I would have opinions on every commentator in every sport which I wouldn't ever share publicly I'm an absolute bitch to watch any kind of well any kind of television I'm saying with dramas and news programs and everything you know I want I want I, I think communication has never been more important than it is now. There's so much fake news out there, so much misinformation. And even in the small world of football commentary, I think it's important to try and get it right and and to put a value on every minute of airtime that you, you're afforded because it is a, a dream come true for me to be a commentator. So, I'm sure that makes me sound very pompous and a little vain and arrogant, but I'm sorry. I, I take this job really, really seriously because I've been given the opportunity to do it. Let me touch on this in your book.
1: Um, I think there's naturally a curiosity about commentators. Who did you grow up Supporting,
0: Could you maybe tell us a little bit about your own huge, as a football fan? Huge Manchester United fan um, from Bury. Um, should really have been a Bury fan because we lived next door to the manager of Bury when I was born. Would you believe? Actually shared a semi-detached house with the manager of Bury Football Club when I came back from the nursing home. But my dad was a United fan. So as soon as I was older, five years Six, uh, eight, he took me to Old Trafford on a fairly regular basis. So I saw best law and Charlton in the flesh. Um, I also saw some really rubbish United teams in my teens. i would supported a team home and away in the second division in the championship. And then I got um, this opportunity to um, move inside track and do this um, job that I, which was my only ambition in life, I was the same age as the players that I was covering. I was spending my entire life with Nottingham Forest players, working for a local radio station, even traveling. In, in my early days, would you believe, I used to travel on the team coach with Liverpool and Everton when they were the best two teams in the country. These guys from Forest and Liverpool and Everton, the two first two jobs that I have are friends to this, to this day. Um, so um, everything was shaped by this change in my life, where from... Supporting a, a club uh, with an intensity and a passion, I was now mates, friends with a lot of the people that I was commentating on. And to this day, who do I support? I support my mates. Manager of England was our wedding. You know, do I want England to win? Yeah, I do. For Gareth, of course does, I do. Does it become impossible then to,
1: to retain, for just... For I guess people in the media in general football media in general to retain that fandom because no I think
0: a lot of guys still support the team that they that that they always did and and openly so um strangely there's become more of an acceptance I think um Cara and Gary have, have sort of um I, I I think I'm still a little bit uncomfortable. About Mosaddeq, your little dancer, you know. I, 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 yeah, okay. And it's, it's not a question that I want you to pretend that you don't care about Liverpool like you do. I'm just not quite sure. And, and he's a huge talent and a really, really conscientious. Uh, carry, you know, the amount of time that he spends in a BT um, studio looking, looking for the clips that will illustrate the points that he wants to make. So he's a proper pro. But that would be actually my only quibble uh, with him. But it seems to be accepted more and more now. Uh, and I think a lot of the journos and, and broadcasters still do openly support their team. But I don't know. You know, the first TV game I ever did was Manchester City 5, Manchester United 1, and I was delighted. Uh, And and I'd been a real home and away supporter of Manchester United three, four years earlier. How much do you still
1: learn from the former players about how the game works, the intricacies, the the patterns of play? Presumably, you know, when you sit next to a former player watching a game, they can explain things that you just don't see. Do you still experience that now, you know, decades on?
0: Absolutely. I love the company of... I love the company of football people when they talking about football. It can be pains in the backside and you get more than ten of them to, together at, at once, as indeed most groups of men can be. Um, but yeah, I love. I love the. It, it, I'm still fascinated by that, that definition of the co-commentator, the guy that's been, that, that, that you know, that man or woman who's been across the white line where I will never go and play professionally played, competitively played at the very, very highest level. So the whole mentality as well as the whole tactical, strategic element of the game fascinates me. I I, I mean, you've mentioned the book and there's a chapter about Graham Sooners who has become a really good friend. I sort of knew him from those early Liverpool days when he was playing. And I I bracket Roy Keane in, in the same chapter. And if I'd ever been a player... I would have hated both of them with a passion, not just hated playing against them because they were so good and so physical, but hated their disregard for my physical well-being because I, I don't believe that I could ever be that competitive where I didn't care about the welfare of the other 21 people on the field, where the result of that match was the most important thing happening on the planet at any one time, which both Graham and Roy were of that mind. So how have they become friends of mine? And I kind of ask that question as I go through the chapter. And I think I'm a bit the same about broadcasting. I think, I I don't hope I'm not difficult to work with, but I don't suffer fools, particularly in my industry. I don't suffer people who don't really care or don't really try or don't try hard enough. And so, I think in those commentary charts, people like Roy and Graham and Sir Alec Ferguson had them uh, hung in his, in his office at at, at Carrington and and previously the the cliff after the 99 final, I think they thought, crikey, this guy is really serious about what he does, just like I am. And I think that was the early bond that I had with some of the professionals that I was fortunate enough to meet. And, you know, if I'm in conversation with Graham and Roy um, off camera to this day, the word standards appears quite a lot in in the conversation. Now, I don't think it's an old fashioned word. I think it's okay to have standards. I don't think you should be intimidated by your standards, and I certainly don't think you should try to enforce them on anybody else. You know, I think that we are a little bit more caring and sharing, perhaps, than we were uh, back in the day. Um, you know, I think um, a, a little bit more. Uh, human care and respect is given to the human being within the dressing room environment. But it's still a pretty hard, harsh environment. And you are still reliant on the other 10 people that are stripped next to you. And if one of them is letting you down, then they're letting everybody down, too. So and I'm fascinated by that mentality, that, 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 that whole culture, really, that whole scenario. And it, there's nothing quite like it in my life, even in my profession. So, yeah, I am, I am absolutely intrigued by the company of people that have been out there where we all want to go. It's only a kick. A jump
1: I guess they also share both examples share a lot of similar things, which you know focus on human nature rather than profession commitment, sort of determination. You know, you've touched on motivation to keep getting better as a commentator. For a lot of people, I guess that motivation naturally throughout their own careers, no matter what it is, will sort of diminish as the years go by out of interest and stuff. How have you kept? That going personally what, what's kept you sort of what every morning you wake up you, you've mentioned games you're going to be watching ahead of the next game the next game you're actually going to be commentating
0: on what is it that, that keeps that motivation going can I trust you with an honest answer yes you're sure vanity I've discussed this with Graham and Roy vanity is a, a rather sort of risable way of saying it with both of those people and with a lot of people in football fear of losing, is the biggest motivation at all of all that the feeling that comes with defeat in my case if you like with um a failure to perform at my best or rejection you know but, but having a job taken away from you or having a match taken away from you if if you care about what you do you feel that more deeply, really, than you should do. I mean, again, if you can take a step back from football, it is just a game. Take a step back from television. It's just some, some blurry pictures on, the, you know, on, a, on a screen or a tablet. Um, it doesn't really matter that, that much, but it matters to the people inside it. And so consequently, the fear of losing, I understand in players as a, as a real motivation. Um, you know, um, forgive the French, my biggest motivation is not to fuck up in front of 20 million people or, you know, 200,000 people.
1: Finally, you mentioned the sort of debriefs that used to happen. Is it fair to say you carry out your own debriefs now after each commentary? And what, what typically would that would that actually involve?
0: Um, well, I, I always try to, to, to watch back, listen back to what I've done, um, just as I do to... W- watch and listen to other commentators, watch and listen to other sports programs, watch and listen to other television. Um, I talked before about the the, the warmth being a really important quality, I think, in a a television broadcaster, and, you know, Koisty having that natural warmth. If, If you were to ask me who I think the outstanding broadcasters are in UK TV today, I... I'd surprise you. I'd throw in like Dermot O'Leary, Bradley Walsh, Declan Donnelly. People who can look down that black hole of a camera, talk to you as if they're talking to you, but actually be talking to tens of millions or certainly millions of people. Um, People who you think you'd like if you met them. Um, people who talk with a warmth and an honesty where you kind of believe and accept them. Attenborough would probably be the the king of broadcasting. Very, very occasionally, once or twice, uh, amongst all that rubbish that you see on Twitter, somebody has said Attenborough football. And, well, I'm certainly sure as hell fucking not that. But, I mean, if you want to really throw a compliment my way, you know, that kind of... um, acceptance as, as being a part of somebody's life who if they want to watch a bit of football, then yeah, that's probably the voice that I'd like to have. That's, you know, that, that is the, the, the biggest, I it's the biggest <laughs> uh, praise that, that, that I can certainly sort of deal with or, or process. So, um, occasionally, um, I have people say to me too that you've been the soundtrack of my youth And um, when you're kind of 68 years of age and you maybe not get as much work as you used to do, you kind of think, is that a compliment or not? But actually, do you know, the people who made an impression on us when we were young are... people that we carry with us through our lives. I say this notion that you need 35, you need to be 25 to, to broadcast to 25-year-olds. I don't accept that. I'm a parent. I can't accept that. I've got to be able to communicate with with younger people. Who knows my grandchildren one day? So you, you, you've got to be um, good enough and broad-minded enough and smart enough to work out what that audience is and, and to broadcast to it. And Attenborough does that brilliantly. And those guys that talk to... I mean, when you're commentating, when you're broadcasting at you know, The Jungle or X Factor or, um, you, you know, one of these mass sort of there are very few television programs which bring a whole family together to watch. So that's a re- you talk about diversity in modern media. That now you're talking to everybody. You're talking to a complete cross-section of the nation. So if you can connect with those people like Bradley Walsh does, like Ali McCoy does, like Attenborough does, then I think that is something to really, really aspire to. And in our little world, our mad, crazy um, world of f- football commentating – The difference between, with the very greatest respect, being Martin Tyler, what's the the largest audience for a super-duper Sunday on Skype? Maybe 3 million. Guy Mowbray and Sam Mowbray are broadcasting to 20-odd million people live during this World Cup. Seven or eight times more than Martin or Darren Fletcher will ever commentate to. There's the jeopardy. There's the test. There's the challenge. How broad can, how how broad is your church? How many of those people can you reach and get the trust of, and hopefully the affection of? That is the real challenge that I faced and and now they face. Um, it's a wonderful challenge to take on. Really is. I'm very privileged, very lucky to have done
1: it. Clive, thank you very much for the past forty minutes of fascinating um, conversation um, hope everyone who's watched really enjoyed um, you can obviously like share subscribe all the videos and there'll be much more across the reach network of websites in the coming days